Ain't gonna burn ourselves out no more. Ain't gonna burn ourselves out no more. Got each other on our side, plus all the folks at Fried the Burnout Podcast with Kate Donovan. Welcome to Season 7 of Fried, the Burnout Podcast. Fried exists to help you remove the layer of shame, blame, guilt, or judgment that is standing in the way of your burnout recovery. We do this by helping you to feel seen, heard, and validated. With a mix of shorter solo episodes and longer deep dives with guests, each episode offers a burnout recovery step that you can take to move along the burnout recovery journey. To help that journey further, you are more than invited to join Fried's Facebook group for support and or book a call to get started with burnout coaching with a Fried guide. If you are an event planner or a company leader and you'd like Kate to come present for you, please reach out at info at As a keynote speaker, coach, podcaster, and author, all of my work is aligned under the mission to hashtag end burnout culture. I can't wait to hear what step forward you'll make thanks to this week's episode. Hello, Fried Fam. This particular episode has been a very long time coming. Mel and I have spoken about once a month for a sweet while, right? A few years now, mm -hmm. anyway. And we met randomly at a conference for acupuncturists in Germany. And it turned out that her father is from my hometown and my father knows him. We met on the other side, of, just to be clear, we met on the other side of the world and found out that our fathers knew each other and that her father is from my hometown, which was just such a weird, just wild connection. And then we also found out that both of us are nerds and that we spend too much time reading books. And We've both been through a lot of sickness and health sort of ping pong situations, like back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And so today I get to introduce you to my dear friend, Mel Hopper Koppelman, who is passionate about helping people overcome complex chronic health challenges and live their fullest life. Struggling with her own complex health challenges, digestive, autoimmune, and neurological she has constantly strived to find accurate, useful, practical, and effective frameworks for helping folks feel better. She has a Master of Science in Acupuncture, a second Master of Science in Nutrition and Functional Medicine, because why get one degree when you can get two? And she's currently undertaking two fellowships, one in Neijing Medicine, which is like in more in-depth Chinese medicine, and more functional medicine, but this time in functional development, behavioral neuroimmunology. What, I'm going to say that again for those of you in the back. <laughs> functional developmental behavioral neuroimmunology. I didn't come up with that. <laughs> it's, it's a mouthful. <laughs> she lives in Rhode Island, USA with her family and practices both locally and through her completely online practice, Synthesis Health Lab. Mel, I can't believe we finally made it here. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me on. Now, as you well know, every episode of Fried starts with a burnout story. And I know that you could pick one out of a hat. So I don't know which one is top of mind for you right now, but I'm going to sit back and give you some space and let you just pour out whatever's showing up. 
Sounds good. I think maybe I'll start with the idea that for, as you mentioned, for a while, we were chatting with each other and you would tell me about your work and I would listen interestedly. And I had zero awareness that that had anything to do with me. That's how burnt out I was. Um, and so, you know, in my journey, I've been quite interested in all of the paradoxes that have arisen. And so here I was um, a trained healthcare practitioner with my own chronic health issues and having studied a lot of psychology and a lot of, um, you know, stress responses and all this and having zero connection that the work that you were doing and describing related to me directly. Um, so that I think is a big, <laughs> a big part of, of, of my uh, burnout story. And I think that the other part that I would connect is I could start um, let's say from an inflection point, you know, when, when everything goes, goes pear shape, um, where I felt like I went burnt out, but really I'm interested in a lot of what you talk about, which is this developmental component. You know, when I hear the term burnout, I think of like a candle or a fire that kind of maybe burns too brightly and then goes out. Um, but you know, my fire maybe didn't get lit properly in the first place, you know, so um, a, a lot of my burnout really goes back to childhood and it goes back to intergenerational stuff and, and it goes it goes there. So it did, definitely did not start in the workplace. Um, there are places where my story kind of overlaps with maybe so, some of that as an adult, but my problems definitely started and reemerged in childhood. So I'm so grateful for your work and the connections that you're making because not enough people have made those connections yet. And I think sometimes they can be a little bit dangerous to make because a lot of them have been actually shown. The science is really clear and some of them are conjecture. So it's people are a little bit nervous about talking about this because lots of people have various traumatic and uh, events that maybe affect their development, but don't necessarily end up burnt out. They might end up a drug addict or something else, and they might end up totally quote unquote normally successful with no other problems. So there's a lot of questions in this area that I I hope we can answer during our lifetimes, but I'm not sure that we're going to get there. Yeah, no, you that's a really good point. And I think um part of where I sit on that at the moment is that I feel like our culture really does not understand development very well at all. Mm. And so that leads to a lot of things being mysterious that once you do understand a little bit about development actually are quite obvious. Um, and so maybe if we were, instead of if, we, if we were talking about humans, which are really tricky and complicated, if we were talking about a plant um, and we're like, well, this plant is like in terrible conditions and terrible environment. And look, it's like leaves look kind of crappy and, you know, then it's not so mysterious. And also there are hardy plants that are in crappy conditions that thrive and, and we wouldn't then conclude from that, that conditions don't matter. We would just say that they, you know, often cause problems, but not necessarily always. And so um, I, one thing that I, you know, kind of unraveling these paradoxes, one thing I realized is that you actually need to have a certain level of healthy development in order to understand development. Um, and so as our whole culture um, struggles, because we do a lot of things that impair development. Um, and we do things that impair um, just general well-being, like of all the things that you talk about in the workplace and, and that 
burnout culture, um, then we have fewer and fewer people who have brains that are working well enough to actually understand what a lifespan looks like, you know, and, and an eon looks like, you know, like children are in a perpetual now um, because that's what their state of development. And then the more and more our brains grow, the more we can hold time in different ways. And as we lose that, our then our ability to uh, safeguard development and promote healthy development becomes decreased as a culture. So I want to repeat this one idea because I think it's a, a critical moment for everybody to listen to. And this idea is that we might be having a difficult time understanding development because we are underdeveloped ourselves. So we, a lot of people may not have the proper literal brain power to see things in a way that would allow us to interpret things in a way that would be helpful. And, and those people, maybe I'll go even a step further, whose brain development does allow them to understand this on a deeper level might not have the ability to explain it in a way that those of us without that can understand it. So now we're stuck in this like loop. Yes. And, you know, one thing I want to add to this, because I, um, you know, again, with in, in, my, in my own journey, I've kind of been quite intrigued by the paradoxes and lest anybody listening kind of feel defensive. <laughs> like, what are you saying about my brain development? You know, what are you, what are you, who are you, who are you calling underdeveloped? Um, one of the things that was really tricky for me uh you know, it's fairly, uh, it's been a long time coming, but it is fairly recent in my own journey that I'm looking at my health and the health of my patients and society through the lens of development. And this is a really, really big missing piece. And um, this is one of the things that I hope, the kind of message I hope to share here, and I know that I'm um, preaching to the converted, um, because everyone needs to look at this because it's affecting everyone in one way or another. So it's affecting uh, most of our kids, it's affecting many of us. And if you're at all thinking about neurodegeneration, like Alzheimer's, that's all that's development in reverse, right? So um, it, it kind of it it matters. But one of the things that um, goes along with certain types of developmental issues, uh, like we see with a lot of neurodiversity, is a characteristic unevenness of skills. And so one mm. thing that kind of comes along with it is that being particularly excellent or advanced at certain things and being particularly um, hamstrung and other things. And that's not kind of a happy coincidence. And that's not even like a silver lining thing. Like just focus on what you're good at. It's actually, it, it's uh, coming from the brain development issues that you have certain regions that may be relatively overdeveloped. Like you're just using, you're just doing one arm push-ups all the time, right? So you've got like kind of this like smoking uh, bicep on one side and an atrophied arm on the other. And that's a really apt metaphor um, for what happens. And so for me, that also led to uh, it taking a long time to figure out the problem because I had this low self-awareness in many ways. I had certain things that I was like particularly good at. So if I were to, I don't know, score myself as a human or as, as an adult, um, there are plenty of things I was doing fine. It wasn't like I had, um, let's say, a developmental issue leading to a disability so profound and so obvious that 
I knew it was there. And for me personally, you know, um, you know, a lot that comes into this conversation about neurodiversity is about labels and about what it even means and is it normal or is it uh, pathological? And these are all things I'm happy to discuss and probably maybe, I don't know, offend half the people listening, um, but uh, not intentionally, but I do, I do want to speak kind of truthfully in a way that I want that coming from a very you know, good place. But for me personally, um, I was labeled growing up gifted and I was really good at certain things and I was really bad at other things, but I was actually not aware that those things that I was bad at actually even existed. So can I give you an example? <laughs> like the interpersonal stuff, you know, or um, even, um, you know, even like just like kind of connecting with people, you know, uh, in terms of neurodiversity, people talk a lot about masking. Mm -hmm. which, um, you, you know, it's, I just kind of refer to as pretending to be normal. Um, yeah. another way to think about it maybe is if you happen to have a stronger left hemisphere of your brain and a relatively underdeveloped right hemisphere, which is like kind of my, the pattern that I'm overcoming and that runs a lot in my family. It's like, I'm using my left hemisphere to figure out how to do things that most healthy balanced people would do with their right hemisphere, <laughs> you know? Okay. So, um, I can kind of, uh, figure out, using, you know, kind of deducing the social cues or how to be funny or how not to piss people off, but it's not. You're doing math for emotions, basically. I'm doing math for emotions. You put it, put it perfectly. So these were things that um, growing up, I was unaware that I was missing. Right. So I wouldn't have even been, it was a problem. I wasn't even trying to solve. Um, and so that had certain advantages in that my self-story was one of being gifted, which is like that it, it, I had this, this uh, delusion that I could just do things and figure things out. And that ended up being a positive self-fulfilling prophecy. But on the other hand, it meant that I never, be, it took me a long time to become aware of blind spots and to figure out real problems that I was having um, that were, that definitely were impacting on my health um, and were actually the kind of the, one of the main driving factors of the chronic uh, you know, condition, conditions that I was trying to overcome. So one of the things that came up there is this idea, this is one that, I think is especially hard to untangle is this sort of crossroads between genetics and healthy development. Because if you said, you know, a lot of my, a lot of people in my family have this tendency and, and we've talked about this ad nauseum in the past. And so if this tendency exists and it is genetic, we, we both know that gene expression can change and there's epigenetics and there's all these ideas that, you know, trauma causes various changes in gene expression. Would it have been, and this is of course just thinking through, but not, we don't, we might not have a, a perfect answer, but would it have even been possible for you to have normal development. It's not like you, like you didn't choose to just like throw, you know, a weight onto your left bicep for years at a time, just for the sake of it. There was already a weight in your left bicep that you're like, Oh, I should pick this up. You know? So where do we, where do we cross paths between genetics and development? And is that too big a question? Pride fam, I tell you in nearly every episode that step one of your burnout recovery is blood work. And I know that a lot of you avoid it because it's a pain, 
and because your doctor has told you that everything is quote-unquote fine, and they refuse to test all the things that you think you need. What if I told you that you could test what you want, when you want, from your home with just a couple of drops of blood? CyFox Health allows you to do just that. You can buy tests as one-offs or join a membership. Either way, you can test and track your results to help you make decisions about your burnout recovery journey. Get 10% off any membership, subscription, or one-time test kit right now. Go to scifoxhealth.com forward slash fried for your discount. That's S-I-P-H-O-X health.com forward slash fried. Not at all. Let's, okay. let's, let's tackle it. I okay. love that question. And, you know, I'm going to try to come at it in a few different ways. And this is definitely stepping into a, long, a larger conversation that I recently realized was going on when I kind of was falling afoul of uh, certain, <laughs> certain people's ideas on it. But, um, you know, so let's back up. So first is that things can run in families that are not necessarily genetic. Right. And we tend to think about, you know, things like genetic, like, I don't know, the genes for blue eye color, you know, passing through and all of that's fairly clear. Um, I, so I'm just going to say things as I believe them. This is, I, I consider this to be a reasonably informed um, perspective, both from uh, studying and looking at research and um, training and also kind of personal experience and having a long family tree of this stuff. There um, aren't any specific genes um, for things like autism or ADHD. I, and now I'm being pedantic. There's like, a, there is a specific genetic autism. That's like 1% of it. So it's not what we normally talk about. So, you know, in terms of ADHD, there's over a hundred genes that are connected with ADHD. And that is actually the definition of a condition that's not <laughs> genetic. If there's over a hundred genes that are connected with it, it's definitely not genetic. So um, something like uh, cystic fibrosis or Down syndrome, th these are things that they have what are called single point mutations. And what that that means is that there is like a typo in the genetic code that leads to a disease. That's like a, a truly genetic disease. So when you have these correlations with over a hundred genes, and a lot of them I would say are genes that encode for how we interact with the environment, um, then I would say that it's not really genetic, but we do have these traits. And, and you kind of took along that metaphor, I was saying about like lift, lifting weights with one arm. So, um, you know, if like in, in my in my case, and, and research shows that this kind of affects more people, it's like if your parents are nerds, then uh, they're going to pass on nerd settings to you because it, like <laughs> they were in a environment where it, it was adaptive and you would thrive if you were a nerd. And therefore I come out with those factory settings. And so this is where uh, the kind of nature versus nurture gets a little bit, um, a little bit tricky that I've already come out with these nerd settings and a little bit lopsided. The analogy that I heard recently that really made a lot of sense to me was from um, someone I'm training with right now, Dr. Robert Melillo, and he talked about these traits that make give us susceptibility to things like autism and ADHD. Mm -hmm. And he talked about a lot of these people being gifted, which I, I'm going to be honest, um, I felt like it was a little bit patronizing when I heard it. I was like, yeah, I can't, I can't find the milk in the, in the fridge and I can't remember anyone's names. So like, yeah, I'm so gifted. Um, but what he said is that if you're breeding racehorses, to win and to be really fast, then you're going to select for traits of having long skinny legs. 
Mm. right? And you're going to breed them for that. And that's going to be the trait that you're breeding them for. If you go too far in that direction of long skinny legs, you're going to end up with broken legs and you're, you know, in horses that are not adaptive. And so that's sort of what we're talking about that um, having a really strong, let's say, left hemisphere for more analytical things and being nerdy and right hemisphere more for creative things um, can be an adaptive thing and it can give you an advantage. But if it's taken too far to an extreme, then it's a susceptibility. And then we can get these impairments in development that lead to issues. And so um, I one thing I'm really kind of eager to, to say is that I want you know, anybody listening, let's say, if they fit into this category or they feel like they fit into this category or they have family members who fit into this category, there's this large movement for acceptance and celebration. And I'm not um, wanting to get in, in the way, <laughs> way of that, that people, I want people to feel, um, you know, comfortable in their own skin and happy for who they are. But I also um, think we might be going too, you know, dangerously too far in the direction of accepting things that include pathology and include, then we're kind of confusing what is um, kind of part of someone's personality and what is like this uh, susceptibility that's then been, uh, you know, damaged or impaired by an unsafe environment or environmental exposures. And so I'm not, you know, I think that in this conversation, because neurodiversity was not uh, like treated very well for a very long time that people, that it wasn't recognized and, you know, the people um, were treated very badly and maybe even sent to be killed. And so there's a lot of baggage there. And I think that when we're trying to go for acceptance, the pendulum might be going a little bit too far towards what I would say is celebrating pathology. And so it's a, it's a difficult line to cross. But when we talk about normal development, I'm not talking about everyone being the same or using some sort of um, like, you know, th this arbitrary kind of yardstick that for everyone to fit into, we just need to understand what health looks like. And we've lost that. Yeah. And I think that this is something that's come up on the podcast before. Um, Sarah did a solo episode on this and and I've talked about it myself that I had much stronger ADHD tendencies when I was really strongly burnt out than I do right now. Mm -hmm. Do I still have some ADHD tendencies? Sure. But was I am I diagnosable right now? Maybe not. Was I diagnosable then? Absolutely. Yes. And so that means that there was something, there's a healing, a, a shift, a change that's happened in my brain and my nervous system in my body that has allowed me to function at a level that's easier for me, whether that's bad or good or pathological or not, where that line is for each person is also totally individual. Like this, I think goes to there are a lot of people, for instance, that have type 2 diabetes that could change their diet and live a healthier life, but they don't want to. It's absolutely okay. I mean, I would prefer that we do a better job, but it doesn't matter what I prefer if it's not my life. It's absolutely okay for someone to say, well, I'm not going to do this healing because I'm satisfied with the way this is. I, I think that the choice of like between uh, health and pathology whether you're thinking it's healthy or thinking it's pathology, I think is irrelevant, but the choice of where you want to live and how you want to live belongs to you. And if you're cool with where you are, then like, hey, live your best life. And also there is this idea that it is possible for some people in some circumstances to be able to shift enough to have their lives be a little easier and a little healthier. Is that fair? 
Absolutely. You know, I think, you know, there's a, a few things. You know, one is that for someone who's an adult who's been struggling their whole life and maybe even unaware that they've been struggling, which is actually really quite common with what yeah. we're talking about, then this sort of realization that they might fit into this pattern can be really helpful in healing. Yeah. So um, I really don't want to take that away. There, there's a, a different conversation that's going on, um, and I've kind of seen this in different places, that are the people who are these uh, influencers who are guiding people who um, are considering themselves neurodivergent or have kids who are um, neurodivergent, and basically telling the message is, um, like for example, you don't want to seek early treatment because there is no treatment because this is a neurotype and it's valid. Okay. And right. th that, that I find to be really sad and really dangerous. And also basically saying that anybody who's offering help, like doesn't understand, you know, that they're, they're wrong basically. And so th that's a really good example that you give about diabetes. And I kind of usually use the example of IBS, like if someone comes to, to for treatment for IBS and I'm like trying to help them normalize their bowels, like I'm not making a value judgment on whether it's good or bad that they're constipated. I'm not, I'm not, not accepting them for who they are if they yeah. want to poop more often. I'm helping them normalize their bowel function. But it's the same thing with our brain, you know, that um, if, if some, you know, someone might have, I don't know, if, if someone is, is, fine with how they are, then that's not, you know, then I'm happy for that. But for someone, let's say who, you know, is having meltdowns or is not able to go out in public or they're, you know, so sensitive in a way that they're struggling to function and just basically saying like, here's a rainbow t-shirt and here's a parade and, you know, and we like, you know, be proud. You know, I think there's something a little bit perverse about that. And I understand where it's come from, but I want to kind of be clear that I'm coming from a place of, you know, of personal experience and shared experience that when I say that, you know, what offer a message of help and prevention and all of those things, it's not coming out of judgment and not coming out of a place of not accepting people for who they are. In fact, one of the best ways I can say to explain it, especially when, as we talk about kids, um, which also relates to burnout because uh, parents of kids who are having these problems <laughs> get very burnt out um, and they may already have some of these issues themselves, is that a lot of kids, because we touched a little bit on this sort of uneven brain development, and that's yeah. very common um, with neurodivergence and leads to this this, um, this pattern of burnout, um, is that you, you might see in kids that they have lopsided smiles, right? That that when they smile, you might, you know, that this one side's coming up more and that's really telling you about their brainstem. And when they start getting treatment, their smile becomes whole. And mm -hmm. so it's really about people becoming more themselves, not about fitting into a box of normality. Do you think that there are things, like you said, that there's this 1% of autism that is sort of more strictly genetic? Do you think that there are more things that are not adjustable? More things that are not adjustable? Like more sort of genetic changes or developmental things that can't be reversed or like how far can we go to say like this thing can shift enough for you to have an easier life? I know that's a, a big question and yeah. I'm sort of, I'm pushing the extremes, but I'm doing it on, on purpose because I think that that's probably something that people are wondering, like, well, I've been this way for 47 years. Like, what are the chances that I, that this can actually change for me? And how do I know if I'm a person that it's not going to change for? Great question. So, you know, this is something that I'm confronting personally in my 
in my own life, you know, so I, uh, a month ago, you know, it, while, while I was in New York to study, uh, with Dr. Malilo, I went to see him as a patient. And he tested me for something that are called retained primitive reflexes, which I definitely want to mention because I think it's really relevant to this entire discussion. Um, maybe I'll just mention it now. So um, when when we're uh, when we're born, um, and even before we're born, we come out with a very immature brain, but we come out pre packaged to be able to do certain movements, and those are movements that are going to help us do things for survival. Like, so we know how to find mom's boob and suck, and we can do a little bit of rolling over and we have a startle response. And so these are um, movements that are adaptive to help us survive. And also these movements themselves trigger the development of our brain. So they, uh, our, our, our nervous system and our brain grows like a tree you know, that there's a root and then there's a trunk and then it comes out. So it's coming from the bottom up and what happens then is as we're developing in that first year of life, then our brain is growing and, and we're getting uh, sensory information through our body, through touch and movement and motor information from moving. And that's what's, that's what's driving the growing of the brain. When we have, uh, adverse childhood events, when we are born, you know, kind of with, from nerdy parents or creative parents, you know, or whatever it is, and, uh, and development is not unfolding optimally, then those primitive reflexes, instead of getting integrated, which means that the brain matures and, and kind of stops them from being active, um, and so that they can be incorporated in more complex things. You can think about it like music. You, you might learn a few notes, and then you can then use those notes into more complex music. Um, when that doesn't happen optimally, then those reflexes are still there. So it's an objective way that you can test someone or you can have yourself tested um, to see. And it's after a year of age, it's, it's never normal for them to be there. So our, our culture and um, the industrial medical lens um, doesn't really tend to look at this too much, except that they might test for these reflexes if they if someone who's very old maybe had alzheimer's or had a stroke then they're called um frontal release signs and what that means is that the prefrontal cortex is like not no longer doing its job and now those reflexes are released but as you've talked about before on this program your brain might not have developed in the first place to inhibit them so all that to say that i i went to see dr malilo and almost all of my primitive reflexes were still retained. And so, for example, um, one of those signs is, um, you, it's called a Babinski reflex. So you um, take a pen and you, and you put it on the bottom of the foot. And if the toes go towards the nose and that's, then that's a sign like of like Alzheimer's or like brain damage. Well, that was still, that was present, you know, um, on my left foot showing that my right hemisphere was, was immature, which I kind of, you know, sort of knew from my own personality, but, um, this is, this completely changes the conversation. And so it's really, I think it's, it gives us an objective window into what's going on. I think that, um, it, for me, it's been life-changing to have that information because the fact is, is that when that's going on, it is always the bottleneck. Nothing else I was going to do was going to work. So even though I've managed to improve my health significantly over the years, and I just, I've been learning and training as if my life depended on it because I believe that it did. And even though those things have helped, nothing was going to solve this particular problem. And so what we need to understand is that, A, you know, our culture is 
kind of just exploding this problem. So um, according to Dr. Stephanie Seneff, by 2030, half of kids are projected to be autistic, which is, is, is incomprehensible. And then, of course, we're concerned with uh, the, the other side, you know, so Alzheimer's and uh, neurodegeneration, but also when you're burnt out. So even if you went through a relatively normal development, when you're burnt out, you also go you know, de evolve and you might see those frontal release lines and so it's to say it's way i think sometimes when we talk about psychology or we talk about emotions we talk about things that are just a little bit harder that they're a little bit less tangible then it can be a little bit more difficult to really understand but these are just objective things that are letting you know that your adult brain is not is not online and it gives a kind of specific um su suggestion of a course of, of, what, of what needs to be done to help get you on track the thing that I'm thinking about when, because we've talked about adverse childhood experiences on, on the podcast before, and there's this, you know, there are these ideas that there are moments in your development that are really important if you don't get the right support, if there's not the right response from a parent, if there's not, but there's also all this environmental stuff that has an effect. So when you were saying, you know, I'm born and one side is more dominant or something, you know, whatever, the the thing that came into my head was like, well, what about when you're born and your brain isn't, your head isn't like the first thing that goes through the birth canal? Like, what about C-sections? What about forcep use? What about, I'm just thinking about that moment of birth and how much affect that environmental situation, that external outside of you, no genetic and no like fault of, or just a thing that needed to happen so you could actually come into the world how much can that affect you? Completely. Um, to Just to make it really, really concrete, there's a bunch of your primitive reflexes whose job is to help you be born. They right. help you come out of the birth canal. And so that... Uh, that physical motion helps them to integrate. Yeah. So if you are uh, taken out of the sunroof, um, then that doesn't happen. So I think there is an increasing awareness in certain circles about the the uh, microbiome effects. So like that when we're born, we, we're going through the environment of mom's vagina and we're getting all those bugs and that's really important for our gut, but it's probably less appreciated but hopefully will be more is that that kind of physical going out that that slide and, and turning um is also an epigenetic thing and so that is going to signal and trigger the next part of the music to be expressed and when we're skipping that then that also has re repercussions and so you know of course um sometimes cesarean section is absolutely life-saving of course of course. And of course, there's an explosion of, of just elective. And so we have this culture that's not recognizing the importance of these basic things, you know, so I do, definitely want to speak to that as well. Um, but if we are aware of what, you know, what is meant to happen, then we can do a better job of supporting when that's not possible. So for example, if um, we need to have a cesarean section, then there are people who are now aware and they're using like a kind of swab, like a vaginal swab, and they're kind of um, exposing the, the baby that way. But then also we can be doing little motor things to help integrate the reflex or help to simulate that movement. And that's such yeah. a small, easy thing, but it's really just about people being aware of how important that is. 
Yeah. And that can be done whether a cesarean is elective or not. Like you can, you can, if that's the choice that you're making because of whatever fears or whatever, uh, you know, past trauma or whatever reason, I was born a week early by cesarean because my mother's doctor was going on vacation. <laughs> and I mean, whatever, like, what are you going to do? But had we had this information, then you can say, okay, well, I'm going to do this. This is my choice. We're not judging the choice, but this is what you can do to support that choice being more okay in the long term. Absolutely. I think this is such a, I, I understand what you're saying by this is such a tricky thing because it, it can be really easy for people to feel judged and or really defensive about some of the choices and some of the states of being. And, and that's really not the point. It's really not the point. Like it's just about figuring out where are we and what happened to us so that we can make better choices. This, we see this a lot in um, parents that haven't gone through their own sort of like healing that if you talk to them as a child and say, well, these things didn't go well for me, they lose it and tell you you're crazy. And sort of because they can't manage the fact that something that they did wasn't the right thing. And my mother and I have had loads of these conversations over the years because I'm not mad about it. I'm not judging it. It's just the story of my life that led me to where I am. And the more we can talk about it and figure pieces of it out, the easier it is for me to support myself to consistently heal, to consistently get to the next level of whatever it is I'm I'm trying to do. And I think people have a... a well, not people, I will say I had a really difficult time with this in the beginning because I felt like if I said anything about having any sort of trauma in my childhood, it was really judgmental toward my parents. And I love my parents and I didn't want to say, you know, like you did me wrong, bitch, you know, that wasn't the point. And so I, I it can be hard to face these things because it, without blame, Self-blame, other blame, culture blame, just blame, which is inherently unhelpful. I don't really have a question. I just needed to say that. <laughs> yeah, no, it's and that, that's a really fair point. It's funny. I I have a kind of um, like a little separation in my mind in terms of how I think about individuals and how they make decisions versus how we make uh, choices in the collective. Yeah. So, you know, we've talked a little bit about how you know sometimes the cesarean section is medically necessary. Sometimes it's chosen, and I don't have judgment there. But what I would what I would want is that the to have a culture or like the medical profession that would present the options in a way where there is something that we are aiming for, right? And so I would say that from a health perspective, barring any unusual medical history, you know, of course, but just in general, we would say that for various evolutionary reasons that having a vaginal birth should be the default. And, and I, I, I kind of want to feel, I want to feel like I'm on solid ground when I say that, that I'm not saying that with any judgment of anyone who's making different decisions, but that that is the default and that we want to then have a conversation from there. And so maybe what I would say that I'm, would be a little bit critical of is uh, someone, a medical professional who's presenting options, not presenting that as the default and making them seem equal 
because they don't want to offend someone or whatever. And I think that, you know, our culture has kind of maybe moved in that direction. And I would like a little bit of a course correction. It's very similar, I would say, around breastfeeding, for example. Yeah. So there are reasons that people, that women cannot breastfeed or the baby has trouble breastfeeding. There yeah. are reasons why women choose not to breastfeed. Yeah. And I don't have any judgment around that, but I want us to be clear as adults when we sit down to talk about it, that the default is breastfeeding. And I'm right. not, and I'm not judging you when I say that, that's, we, 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 you know, we've kind of gone into this sort of post fact reality, you know, but I want to yeah. bring us back to, to, to firm ground that the yeah. default is breastfeeding. And therefore, if you choose to deviate from that, or you want to deviate from that, then at least know that that's what we're, we're kind of aiming to emulate. And so then that can help us make better decisions. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense to me. The other thing that's been going through my mind as we're talking is when I was reading all the, the research about adverse childhood experiences, one of the things that came up was that there are also positive childhood experiences that can balance out some of those factors. So you could have a ton of adverse childhood events and still have decent development because of some positive events. So there are people out there that are mothers that are listening right now, and they're like, oh my God, I'm going to mess up my child. Everything is a disaster. What do I do to like to do everything that I can to make sure that I'm doing the right thing for my child? And this is actually a question that has come up in the past in the Facebook group. Like, how, how do I best support my child's neurodevelopment to ensure that they won't burn out. And I'm like, well, I don't know that you can totally ensure that they won't burn out because a million things could happen in their life that have nothing to do with you. So, and, and it's not your, it's not your full responsibility because you can't control every factor, but can we talk about some of the positive factors that we can implement on purpose in order to encourage a healthy development? That's a great question. And I'm, uh, you know, I'm definitely in the, I have a, a four-year-old daughter. Um, I've definitely been in the position where I've been going through my own reparenting as I've gone, you know, going through motherhood and also, go, you know, realizing that I had all of this neural developmental challenges and then having her assessed as well. And so we're actually kind of going through treatment together. So there's a couple things I would say, you know, one is that if you if you can having your child assessed for things like retained primitive reflexes as an objective marker because if you are if you are struggling with your if your child's struggling with things like regulation or like you know behavior or what you know what I have found actually I would do want to say this is that um, I see a strong correlation between how convenient or inconvenient the child's behavior is and how likely they are to be diagnosed with something um, that that some kids are struggling but. It, it, they behave in a way that's not too problematic for the people who are taking care of them. And so they're less likely, but really good, which, this is the good kid syndrome, the good kid syndrome. That's right. Yeah. This is good kid syndrome. And I see this all the time in people that eventually end up burnt out. They were never problematic. Their parents were, this was me. This was my mother. This is not problematic. Did the right thing. D- yeah. Didn't make too much noise. Didn't ask for too much sort of, you know, kind of like, went into the background a little bit. Yes. Yes, absolutely. This, this is it. So, so, you know, yeah. So getting, getting your kids assessed and really this should be the standard of care and this is an awareness building thing. So one day, you know, if I, if I have anything to say about it, it will be, but you, at the moment you're going to have to seek this out, you know, 
in the United States, the uh, CDC last year or two years ago, they adjusted all of the childhood development milestones yeah. and, and delayed them. So yes. that whereas walking was at like 12 months, they changed it to like 16 months. Now, yeah. I can tell you that h- human baby mammals have not changed, right? Yeah. But what's happened is that um, so many kids were struggling to meet those milestones that they've just lowered the bar. So that's one thing, because if your kid is struggling with their neurological development, most of the approaches and techniques that are being used are often a mismatch. They're not appropriate. So for example, um, a lot of uh, the the approaches for helping kids with like behavior or learning really require them to have a prefrontal cortex that's online. And lots of times it's not. Um, also, I personally find that when you can see that the issue is neuro, uh, neurological, it helps to take a little bit of the blame and guilt off of your parenting, you know, yeah. um, at least that that's how I found it. The second thing, um, and, and when my my daughter was born, I was burnt out. You know, so I was. Uh, it was it was an interesting time. But the, one of my kind of guiding principles that I, you know, well, a couple of things. One is that what the literature shows in terms of childhood development is that parenting needs to be good enough. And you've alluded to this, but that's one of my little mantras: is that I I do not get it perfect, um, and I don't always even get it great. But I just remind myself that parenting needs to be good enough for them to be uh, healthy and thriving. But the other guiding principle, and this comes from the ACE literature, this comes also from cellular biochemistry, this comes from neurological development, is that the most important thing is connection. And so, when let's say, you know, things have been actually a lot better, you know, with uh, my daughter since we've been doing these developmental um, treatments and exercises. But before, if she's having a tantrum or melting down, it's, you know, my kind of first response is to go into anger and defense and, you know, try to manage it. And I'm feeling overwhelmed and my primitive reflexes, you know, my moral response um, of, 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 of panic is being triggered. My nervous system's haywire. But if I remember that it's never going to be wrong to try to increase connection, then that's been helpful. You know, sometimes when behavior is bad and you think, oh, if I don't, I don't know, if I don't do something to stop this, I'm going to give the message that it's okay or all this stuff, all all this noise that we have and it's understandable. But um, I just think to myself, I'm never going to regret trying to figure out how to connect. And it's actually been really, really a game changer. It's been really, really changing. So um, I don't know if that's helpful. I'm not uh, a trained childhood psychologist, so I don't, hopefully I'm not giving terrible advice, but um, I, no, I don't No, think- well, this is true for those of us that are burnt out too, right? A lot of times we have to take a break from connection because we've created poor connection with people that requires too much of us. And we have to sort of come back into ourselves and then reach back out so we can connect. And there are plenty of studies that show over what it was at the Harvard, most recent Harvard, release of long-term health and happiness, the most important factor is connection. So why would it be the most important factor when you're 90 and not the most important factor when you're nine months? Like it doesn't make sense that it would change. And we, we tend to forget that we are social people. It's one of the reasons that I have Sarah running group programs and why we have the Facebook group, because I do believe that while sometimes I I really do believe that you need one-on-one support because you're so far gone in this burnout space that you you're you just really don't know what to do or think but when you're a little bit further through it you've made some progress you've changed some things you need people around you and you need people that you feel safe with and you need to have a sense of community like the facebook group is 
I started it on a whim because somebody said I should have one. You know, it was like one of those, like, well, you should have this. And I was like, oh, okay, you know. And now it's been there for a couple of years and I can't imagine life without it because it has become such a place of solace and support for almost 2,000 people at this point, which is incredible. And I so I, I, I think that this, first of all, good enough idea is incredibly important. And I think aiming for connection, I mean, why would that be? But And what are the things that we typically do? Like go to the corner, be by yourself, mm -hmm. go think about your... You know, we we don't do those connection things super often. And sometimes we just, we don't have our enough emotional regulation skills in ourselves. Like you were saying, you get mad, you get frustrated, you get overwhelmed. So you get defensive. So you yell. So you, and if that's again, no judgment. And you're going to have days like that still, even if you're trying for connection most of the time, that's just life. I mean, I do that as, a, as an adult with my husband, Never mind. <laughs> I do with my dog. <laughs> like, seriously, I mean, come on. And I suppose the other side of that that I would be uh, remiss to, to not mention that you kind of alluded to as well then is that the other side is like if you're a parent, that on the one hand, at least for me, the, my guiding principle in the moment, if I'm not sure how to parent well, is I'm not going to go wrong with connection. And then also making sure that you do that self-care um, yeah. and, and, and feed yourself with that. And there's no need to feel guilty for that. I mean, for me, my own uh recovery which is both burnout recovery and kind of not having sort of uh, being a little bit undercooked and not having developed um optimally the, the first time around you know is such a priority you know even again to make it concrete you know i had a i had something called a retained moro reflex and that's a startle reflex that you know babies have um that that increases a sympathetic response now um i had enough resource internal resources that when normal child doing normal childhood things startles me that I could, you know, I wasn't like freaking out that I could calm myself down and not react. But you want to talk about a really fast road to burnout, hang out with a four-year-old with a retained moral reflex, you know, that they're doing normal childhood things and your nervous system's getting set off in a panic all the time. So for me, like there's, <laughs> I've never worked so hard at anything in my life as I am on healing from this, because as I, integrate these things so I don't have an active moral reflex, then I don't need to manage the results of a dysregulated nervous system. I can, I have so many more resources to do other things. And the other part of the message and something I really want people to understand is that if my, you know, for those who uh, have some sort of similarities with the story that I'm, I'm sharing of having these, in, you know, retained primitive reflexes and uneven development leading to kind of a nervous system dysregulation, most of the advice that we get about what to do with that, about that won't work for this. So, and all these things are good, good advice. And I give this advice, like spend time in nature and rest and meditate and all of those things that I definitely think are helpful. They, they won't fix this problem. So I, I wanted to, to make sure that I said that because if you're feeling like you're doing everything right and nothing's working and that you're broken and it's fine for every, everyone else, this might very well explain why. And then um, at least knowing where to look will mean that all of those other things will start to work. So where do they look? Where do they look for 
for that sort of uh, help. So, you know, I, as I mentioned before, I'm uh, training with Dr. Robert Molillo. I think he is a good resource. He's someone who he's um, in the process of completing his PhD, but he's probably treated more children and adults with these issues than anyone on the planet. He also has a lot of published research, which uh, as a clinician, I find uh, keeps people honest because it's really easy for someone to claim that their special magic works. Um, but if you're doing a peer-reviewed study, then it, it, needs, it needs to be right. And also he's working with really challenging populations, getting really good results. And I think that um, that only happens when you know what you're doing. Um, you, just to give a little um, kind of deeper example of his work, because I'm really quite enjoying this. He, he has um, a, a course where he goes through every single area of the brain, you know, the brain's like kind of all these hills and valleys, it's all mapped out. And he goes through every single section, what it's called and what it connects to and what it does. And, and so um, that, that kind of lights me up. It might not light you up, but I want you to know that humans, people, we know this information. And so it doesn't need to be such a mystery of like labeling behavior and either putting up with it or celebrating or medicating it. Um, you know, we can have faith in our fellow humans that we are figuring things out and we are figuring out how to support one another so that we can develop well. Um, is Melillo, M-E-L-I-L-L-O? That's right. All right. Yep. So I he's, he's training. Sure. Yeah. He's training other folks. Um, he does have a register of trained uh, people. I mean, I, in my work, I don't specialize in children, although I'm increasingly working with children, but I found that the people I've already working with um, who have, let's say, um, autoimmunity or chronic fatigue or fibromyalgia, that increasingly we need to look at this lens and everyone at least needs to be screened for this. Like if, if that's not your problem, then like fantastic, you know, but yeah. if it is, if this is um, going on for you, then it needs to, it needs to be like that. I love it. Before we started today, you wrote me a message and said, I think we need 45 hours. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't disagree because there we could, there's a lot more here to unpack, but I do think that we just gave a big enough chunk for people to chew on, to digest, to highly recommend, hint, hint, listening again to this. But I also know that you have you have a program that you run, but there's also a free portion of it that people can apply to be a guest in so they could check it out and see what, how you work, et cetera. How, how does that happen? How would people do that if they're listening and they're like, ah, it's me. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, I run a completely online program over at synthesishealth.co. Uh, I think that the URL is forward slash join hyphen We'll put it somewhere. <laughs> oh yeah, that'll be, that's a safer bet. Um, but basically, you, um, you you fill out an application. Just let me know a little bit about yourself, and then you can come into the group and access. I don't know, about 50 hours of material and ask me any questions about your health that you have completely for free. So this is uh, this is a temporary status. So people don't hang out there for free forever. But maybe you know, two, three, four weeks. It, it's um, it's fantastic because it gives you a sense of what it's like to be there. Um, I'm really teaching you how to fish. I'm giving you very practical, um, very practical advice. And I, and I work with complex chronic, uh, things which are usually not straightforward. And that's, you know, a lot of people have tried a lot of different things about half of the people I work with are practitioners themselves. And then if you, want to go into a long-term coaching thing, then, then you can apply for the program. But what I really like is that 
many people who decide not to are still better off afterwards. So they've still been helped just by having some of their questions answered. So it's a really nice setup. So that link, as per usual, my fried family will be in the show notes so that you don't have to remember if it's a forward slash, a backslash, a coacom well, or whatever the heck. If I, if I can't remember it, <laughs> I'm, I'm, work, I'm working on the short-term memory. <laughs> Mel, thank you so much for all of this. I know that there's a few things that popped into my mind today that I'm like, uh, oh, oh. Okay. And I think there's some exploration of some things that um, people have been asking for in the Facebook group, people have mentioned, and that I haven't had the opportunity to talk about with someone that I felt had done enough work or research to talk about. (laughs) So I appreciate you. I appreciate you. And thank you so much for the opportunity. Fried fam, you really might need to just do this one again write some things down, do a little research. Don't ask me your questions because I don't know the answer. (laughs) But you might want to ask Mel. Um, There's a lot. There's a lot in here and there's a lot that can provide more solace than you might have thought was possible. And I think that's the most important message. If you've looked in a million places, well, here's a million and one, and it might just be the one that you need. And you know me, I am always looking for the next best thing for you to be working on and the right solution for each individual person. So please know that everything that we bring to you is designed to help you heal. All right, until next time. Ain't gonna burn ourselves out no more Ain't gonna burn ourselves out no more Got each other on our side Plus all the folks at Fried the Burnout Podcast With Kate Donovan